Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Amen. You guys can take a seat. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors at Revision. I'm excited to be here today. How about you? All right. On Tuesday, I was really feeling Taco Tuesday, so I took my family to get tacos for dinner, except when we walked into the restaurant, there was only one person working, like taking orders at the counter and cooking, and she was way behind on online orders, and so we immediately realized Taco Tuesday was not happening, and I felt my heart go from happy to hangry in an instant, full pendulum swing. And I wasn't about to go full Karen on some poor overworked employee. It was not her fault. And I also didn't want to crab at my kids because I was so sad about not getting tacos. So I had to do a real quick heart check and face check to make sure I didn't look all sour and mean and give her a bad impression and my kids a bad example. Because the truth is, I am terrible at patiently waiting. I hate it, and I don't actually think I'm any better at it than my kids. The only difference is they whine out loud, and I just make that same noise in my head. And I do that because I'm an adult, and I don't want people to look at me. And I know if I do that out loud, people will look at me, because every time we take our kids anywhere and wait in line for more than three seconds, people look at us after they make that noise. It's just all the parents in here nodding their heads right now, and all you youngsters without kids, you will learn I remember growing up, going to Adventureland, wondering why my dad did not seem to be having as much fun as I was, and now I know. Waiting for a roller coaster with kids is like waiting in a security checkpoint at a crowded airport, only it's 90 degrees with 70% humidity, and someone's yanking on your shirt asking when it's time to spend $20 on a five-ounce cup of Dippin' Dots. It just, it just is. But in fairness to my kids, waiting is hard, especially in an instant gratification society. We're used to getting what we want on demand, pretty much wherever and whenever we want it. And so waiting for delicious tacos is difficult. Waiting for a Ferris wheel is difficult. But waiting on God is even more difficult and infinitely worse. It's painful sometimes to feel like we are waiting on God and we have no idea where he is or whether he's going to show up at all. But all of us have been there. We've had those moments. I don't care who you are, where you're at on your faith journey, even if you're a skeptic and you're not sure what you believe, we have all found ourselves from time to time in the middle of this shattered world asking the question, why doesn't God do something about that? And for most of us, it doesn't even take very long to come up with a that. Maybe you're sitting next to that right now. Don't elbow them. Don't let them know. Maybe you left that at home. Maybe you work for that or work with that. For others of us, that is a difficult situation, a broken relationship, a longing that's gone unfulfilled. And we find ourselves wondering, like, is God ever going to show up here? Can my marriage be fixed? Am I going to find Mr. Right or Mrs. Right? Will healing even come? Is, like, is it going to be my turn sometime? Because I look around and there's babies everywhere. They're popping out all over the place at Revision. When is it going to be my turn? Will my kid ever find their way back to God? How is it possible to hold on to hope when there's all this violence in the world? Why doesn't God do something about that? And we've all 
been in the broken places and the painful spaces where we ask that question and then somehow try to reconcile the realities of our lives with the idea that God is good and he loves us. But how do we do that? I mean, sometimes we look at our pain and just decide God, God must not be good or God must not really love us or maybe we even decide that God must not be God that he's not real at all because how could a good God allow all the pain and suffering that he allows in this world? How could a good God allow bad things? For some of us, that was the end of faith, that question. We got hung up on it and eventually walked away. For some of us, we're hung up on it right now and we're thinking about walking away because it's incredibly difficult to connect the goodness and love of God with the suffering that surrounds us. But the interesting thing is, I think, when we struggle with that question, if we're honest, when we think about the bad things we wish God wouldn't allow, we're pretty focused on the bad out there and not so much the bad in here. But when we boil it down to a soul level and we get real truthful about the fact that the seeds of all of those awful things people do live inside our hearts as well, it kind of changes the equation a little bit. I mean, don't raise your hand on this, but have any of you in this room ever done anything bad? <laughs> maybe a handful, maybe a roomful. Follow-up question, and really don't raise your hand on this one, please don't. But like, have any of you ever thought about doing something really bad, but you just didn't want to get caught and go to jail or wreck your life? But if you knew that no one would ever find out, you probably would have done it. I think the fact that 100% of us could answer yes to both of those questions means that like, when we get exhausted and angry in the waiting and we begin to ask the question, how could a good God allow bad things to happen? We're actually asking a question I don't think I've ever heard anybody speak out loud. Maybe you have, but I haven't. We're asking, how could a good God allow me to happen? If God were actually good, shouldn't he have done something about me by now? Or it gets real awkward once we start looking in the mirror. Like, Because as long as it's, it's big and out there stuff, we feel pretty justified being angry about it. But when we're real with ourselves about the small and in here stuff, then... And we could say that's a totally different question, but it's not. At that point, we're just playing semantics. We're getting into how much wood could a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood territory. It's a nonsense question with a nonsense answer if we can't be real about the darkness that lives inside our own souls. And if we can be real about the darkness that lives inside our own souls, but we're still doubting that God could possibly be good, then what we're creating is an unfalsifiable premise. We're saying, I cannot believe that God exists because I exist. I can't believe in a good God because he let me be here and I am bad. And the only way for God to prove to me that he's good would be for him to make me not exist. But then I wouldn't exist to know that he's good. And it's just, it's a real conundrum. But if we press pause and zoom out for a second, I think we need to admit, I need to admit, we all have to admit that for every single one of us who exists as humans in this broken, imperfect world, this is actually difficult and incredibly emotional, and deeply painful. Because our lives are not the way that we want them to be, and our world is all sorts of messed up, and it's not a simple task to believe that God loves us and God is good while we're living that reality. But I think if the Apostle John were here with us today, 
in the middle of our pain, in the middle of all of our questions, he would say, hey, just hang on for a minute. If the circumstances of your life have left you in a place where you're doubting that God is good and God loves you, could you hang on for one more minute? Because I actually saw something that completely changed the game for me. My life was never the same again after I heard what I heard and saw what I saw. And I think my experience might just be able to speak into your current anxiety. This morning, we're in week six of this series we've been in called When Pigs Fly, and we're, we're pretty well finishing it up this morning, like almost. The, the series where we're looking at the seven signs John writes about in his eyewitness account of the life of Jesus that are meant to give us a bigger, better vision, a revision of who Jesus is and who we are created to be. And I say we're, we're sort of and almost finishing it up because the seventh sign is a real doozy, and we're going to celebrate that in two weeks. But today, the sixth sign. It's the biggest one yet. Every time Jesus does something, you think he can't go bigger than that, and he keeps doing it. He keeps cranking it up to 11, and today he cranks it to 11 in John chapter 11. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible handy, you can crack it open to John 11. Otherwise, you can follow along with the words on the screen or in the revision app. And if you need a Bible, or your kids do, we have them in all sorts of different colors for all sorts of different ages. Back at the Next Steps table, grab one before you leave. We love giving them away. But John 11, this is a story that for, for churchy people, like if you're one of the people in here who grew up in or around church, it'll be real familiar. And as soon as I read the first verse, you're going to know how the story ends. But I want to invite you today to pretend you don't. Just do the best you can to hear this with fresh ears and see it with fresh eyes and just allow it to wash over you and blow you away once again, just like it washed over and blew people away in the first century when they heard it for the very first time. John writes this, now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And this Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. And so the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. So John makes sure we know these are not just random folks. These are some of Jesus' best friends. Like imagine being Lazarus and being known as the one you love. Like the one you love is sick. Like he's rolling around and people know he's Jesus' BFF. You know he had this bumper sticker on the back of his donkey. He's like, I'm pretty important. I'm pretty, I'm a pretty cool dude. Like I am Lazarus, all right? So Jesus hears that his, that his buddy is sick and then he does something ridiculous. He says something that if you were sitting there with him would have been wildly confusing. Verse 4 says, Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, and he said, this sickness will not end in death. Nah, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Okay, Jesus just created a whole new category in the world, sickness for God's glory. Like, sickness is going to bring glory to God? And Jesus is like, yeah, but sickness is bad. He says, yeah, on its own, it's bad, but this one is so that. And that's a purpose statement. This one has a purpose. This sickness is so that the world will get a better, or a, a better picture of who I am and how I love and who I created them to be. This one is so that your eyes will be opened to who God is. It feels just like an insane thing to say, but Jesus is doing something here. He's saying, hey, as human beings, you have this tendency, whenever pain comes into your life, whenever you're uncomfortable, to start looking backwards and trying to discover the past cause. 
But I want to change your lens, and I want you to begin to look at difficulty in your life through the grid of future purpose. Not what bad thing caused this bad thing to happen, but what good thing could God bring out of the bad thing that happened. See, I have a plan. A couple of big ideas I want us to take from the story this morning, and the first one is this, God is working in our waiting. You guys have heard me say this again and again and again. Something is happening even when it feels like nothing is happening. Something is being transformed on the inside of us even when the outside of us feels like it's stuck in a place we do not want to be. Like God is on the move. He's working in and through our lives to draw us and the people around us toward his love even when it feels like he's not doing anything at all. And the story continues. John writes, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. This feels kind of like a throwaway line. Like, why would he include it in there? But I'm convinced that he puts it in there because what we're about to read is going to make it feel like Jesus doesn't care about them at all. Like, if John didn't tell us ahead of time that Jesus loved these people, we might be tempted to quit reading the rest of the story because it feels like Jesus just couldn't care less about them. Verse 6 says, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, Jesus stayed right where he was for two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. So somebody tells Jesus, hey, your friend Lazarus is dying, man, and you're like a day away already. You better hit the road. And all the disciples expect him to hit the road. And Jesus is like, oh, man, crazy, Lazarus. <laughs> I'm going to take a nap, fellas. Somebody think about dinner while I am napping because I'm going to wake up hungry and then we'll probably just be chilling here for a while. It's like, wait, what? He has no sense of urgency whatsoever. It's almost shocking that Jesus cares this little about the limited window of opportunity he has to get there before Lazarus dies and the story is over. And after a couple days, he's like, all right, let's go. And by then, the 12 disciples have thought about it. And they're like, you know, we don't, we don't want to go. This seems like a bad idea. You know, last time you were up in that region, they tried to stone you, man. And now you want to go back? And we talk about stoned here. It's not recreationally. That's a whole different thing. It's throwing rocks at your head until you seem dead. And his disciples are like, hey, I know that you think we should go back there. But um, you might not remember this. We remember it very vividly. They, They threw rocks at you last time. And sometimes when they try to stone you, they miss and they hit us. It doesn't feel good. So we don't want to go. I think that's fair. But Jesus responds to it in the most Jesus-y way ever. They're like, hey, maybe we shouldn't go back to the time where they throw rocks at us. And Jesus looks at them, and I love it so much, because this is the kind of stuff that gives me confidence the Bible is real. If you were going to write a story and make it up and try to convince people that this dude was God, you would not write down that he said this. This just isn't something you'd make up. He looks at him, he's like, is there not 12 hours of daylight? And when you walk during the day, you can see, but it's when you walk at night that you fall over. What does that have to do with anything? Like, just imagine being the disciples in this moment. They're just looking at each other. And Matthew and John are like, did you get something out of that? And like, oh, no. No, no. We just write everything down. Maybe it'll come in handy later. I don't. And the crazy part is it does. If you look back 
From the end of John's gospel to this moment, you see that what Jesus is talking about is opportunity. He's saying, fellas, you actually are going to want to come along for this journey because it's going to provide you with the clearest chance you've ever had to understand who I am. And after he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. And his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he's going to get better. Now, Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. (laughs) This this one is the best. It's another one of those moments that I think if I were one of the disciples, I would have done exactly what they did. He's like, you know, Lazarus has been sleeping, or Lazarus has been sick, now he's sleeping, and they're give him some medical advice. He didn't ask, but they give it to him anyway. They're like, you know, if he's sleeping, that probably means his fever broke. He's going to get better. We should leave him asleep and not go to the place where they throw rocks at us. Like, you just be smart about this, man. And we can chuckle at that all we want, but let's not pretend that everyone in this room hasn't given God medical advice at some point. Like, I know you've been on, Lord, I was just on WebMD, and it feels like this is what you're going to need to do here. Like, we've done it, right? And so the disciples are like, maybe we shouldn't go wake him up. And Jesus is like, oh my goodness, I gotta tell you that he's dead. And so Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you might believe. This is the most awful thing Jesus has ever said. Like in the moment, completely out of the context of what happens later, this is a terrible thing to say. They're like, they're shocked. They're like, wait a minute, he's dead? Yeah. And you knew? Yeah. And we just sat around here? And you let Mary and Martha like try to nurse him back to health and then mourn over his death? Yeah. And you're glad? He's like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Glad. So that you may believe. If I was not really, so I'm going to believe what? That you're a liar? If I were John right here, I'd have been, liar! Liar! <laughs> like, you finally messed up, man. It's taken three years, but finally you're imperfect. I feel so much better about myself because you said, this sickness will not end in death. And then you're like, Lazarus is dead. That's why we didn't think he was dead when you said he was sleeping. You said he wasn't going to die. So you lie. And Jesus is like, nah. But you said, nah. No, I said it won't end in death. And it's not going to. See, death, it has a chapter in Lazarus' story. Death is actually going to get a chapter in every one of your stories. Death is even going to get a chapter in my story. It's just not the final chapter. Like, I got a whole plan going on. There's a, there's a treasure in the middle of this tragedy. You guys just can't see it yet. The second thing I want to see in the story is that God creates beauty out of brokenness. We serve a God who never wastes a hurt. And that doesn't mean God causes every hurt in our lives or God celebrates every hurt in our lives, but it does mean God works in the middle of every hurt in our lives. Remember, as humans, when bad things happen, we get caught up looking for past causes. What is the bad thing that made this bad thing happen? But God is constantly seeing things through the lens of future purpose. What is the good that we can work out of this bad thing happening You guys, even in our worst moments when it absolutely doesn't feel like it and we are so far from where we want to be, God looks through the lens of an eternal perspective and he steps into the holes and the cracks in our lives and he gives us the greatest gift he possibly could, himself. He shows us who he is and how outrageously he loves us so we can anchor our lives in that and point the world around us toward him.
God creates beauty out of our brokenness. Like, why doesn't God do something about that? Because God understands sometimes he has to work through that in order for us to really understand who he is and what he's all about. So finally, the disciples, they resign themselves to the idea they're, they're going. They still don't want to go. And, and the one who says it is Thomas. And I love Thomas. He's like the Eeyore of the group. All of you have an Eeyore. If you have more than two kids, one of them's Eeyore. It might be your mom or your mother-in-law. Or your, like, he's just like, all right, fine, let's go die with him. Lazarus already died. He's going to die. They're going to throw rocks at me. And we might as well just go die. I don't have anything else to do today. Let's just all go die. <laughs> I, just, I love it so much. Thomas. Uh, so they go, right? And we read this. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Just pause for a minute. Try to imagine the drama leading up to that. Lazarus is dying in bed with no painkillers back in the day. And his sisters are there sitting by his bedside, wiping the sweat off his brow saying, Jesus is coming. We sent word to Jesus. We've seen him heal strangers. We've seen him heal Romans who are our enemies. We've seen him heal random people who like tugged on his shirt. He's definitely coming as fast as he can to heal his best friend. And they're waiting and wondering. And the whole town is just looking off under the horizon, waiting for that little dust cloud of Jesus and the boys coming to heal. And you, you imagine Mary and Martha, they're taking turns. Like one of them's at the bedside and one of them's in the front yard, just looking, waiting, wondering. And nothing happens. Jesus never comes. Isn't that where we live our lives sometimes? That empty gut-wrenching space of waiting for God to show up and do something and getting nothing back from him, of expecting that he's going to come, he's going to heal, and he's going to solve the problem, and then finding him to be completely absent in the middle of our pain and resigning ourselves to the fact that like even if he showed up now it's probably too late to do something so this just must mean he doesn't care in the way that we thought he cared it's hard not to end up in that spot sometimes and i am convinced because of that that jesus orchestrated this exact moment in history that this was incredibly intentional and he did it so that we, so that Mary and Martha and Lazarus and the disciples and you and me, so that we would be able to carry hope into our uncertain futures in this shattered world. That's how important this was. He had to do it for your sake and for mine. And so he showed up four stinking days late. And four days is significant. In the ancient Near Eastern world, there was this superstition among a lot of people that the, the, the soul kind of hovered above the dead body for, four day, or for three days. And then on the fourth day, the face changed and the soul knew that it could not re-inhabit that body and it was gone. And so four days was one day too late to do anything about it, even for the most superstitious person in that culture. And that's when Jesus shows up with his embarrassed disciples who believed at one point that they were going to witness a healing and now are just being stared down by everybody wondering, what are you jerks doing here now? You didn't even show up for the funeral. But Jesus is teaching them something and us something that God's delays are not denial. It feels like it. Every time we're waiting on God and we're expecting him to show up and he doesn't show up on our timeline, it feels like he has completely rejected and forgotten about us. But the presence of pain in our lives is not equal to the absence of his love. 
He's operating from a whole different vantage point, and his delay is not a denial. So he rolls up on Bethany, and we read that when Martha heard Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Look, I don't know why Mary stayed at home, but I can guess why. I know why I would have stayed at home in that situation. She's mad. Jesus could have, Jesus should have, Jesus didn't. Jesus must not care in the way that I thought that he cared, and I don't want to see him. And even Martha is mad. She shows up and she says, look, man, if you were here, this would not have happened. And it's the exact same thing we do when tragedy strikes. We look at God and we shake our fists and we say, this is your fault. So what are you going to do now? And that's what Martha says. She says, what are you going to do about it now? I know even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, okay, yeah, yeah, I know, I get it. Thank you so much for that empty theological platitude. I do believe that like in the last day, he'll be part of this resurrection thing. I have no idea exactly what that means, but I believe that it's true. Thank you so much for all the help with my grief, dude. And then Jesus' response to her was something so ridiculous that only a crazy man, like a complete looney tune, or, or maybe like this awful manipulative liar, or perhaps the God of the universe in human flesh come to be with us would even think to say. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Like, who says that to someone who just lost their brother? Jesus does, because she needs to know who he is, because who he is changes everything. And we need to know the exact same Thing. He looks at her and he says, whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who is to come into the world. Do you believe? Like, I admire Martha's response. Because I'll be real, at least if you guys are anything like me, it's hard to actually believe that sometimes. It's easy to believe when you're six. It's harder when you're 10 and your dog dies. It's even harder when you're 15 and your grandma dies. And it's even harder when you've lived long enough to experience the depth of tragedy and pain that exists in this world. It's hard to hang on to the idea that in the middle of all of this, God is good and God loves us. But he looks at Martha and says, do you believe? And she says, yes. And then Mary shows up and has basically the exact same conversation with Jesus again, but something happens at the end of that conversation that for me is a game changer. In the middle of my pain, in the middle of my suffering, in the middle of my life not always being the way I want it to be, Jesus' response to Mary is an anchor for my soul. He sees her crying. When Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Lazarus was dead and his family was hurting and the heart of Jesus broke for their broken hearts. He couldn't help himself. And this phrase that we translate deeply moved in spirit and troubled literally means angry, Almost everywhere else it shows up in the Bible says angry. Jesus was angry. He wasn't angry at them for grieving. He wasn't angry at the people for crying. He was angry at death for existing. He was angry that his friend was dead and wrecked over the fact that everyone had to experience it. Like sometimes I think 
when we're suffering and we don't know where God is, it feels like he's distant. It feels like he's too big to actually care about our little lives. But what Jesus is showing us in this story is that God is near when we're in need. He's not far gone. He's not far off. Even if we can't see him and can't touch him and can't feel him, he is right there. And he is shattered over all of the cracks and dents and bruises in our stories. Jesus lives that out. I mean, he can't help himself. He actually knows what's coming next. No one else in that entire space, no one else in that entire village knows what's coming next. And Jesus does, but he can't even stop himself from just completely losing it. He just breaks down and he weeps. And the story tells us, then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, Martha said, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor for he's been in there four days. This is another piece of free medical advice for the creator of the universe. Like four days, it's going to stink, man. I'm surprised you didn't know that, but we're not going to do it. And I think Martha rubbed in the four just because she's like, yeah, yeah, four days, one day too late to do anything. He's real dead and real stinky. This is a bad choice because everybody went to the grave thinking Jesus was going to do a little graveside committal. Like, I don't know why he wants to go to the tomb. He's probably going to preach some words that none of us understand, tell a little parable. We'll, we'll grieve and weep together. And then Jesus is like, hey, roll that, roll that stone away. That's what you're going to want to do. And then they're like, why would we do that? That's so gross. Ugh. And Jesus is like, did I not just say, if you believe in me, you're going to see the glory of God? Did I not? Just, did I, not I just said it. I just said, if you believe, you're going to see something cool. Like, I, oh. He starts praying. And he looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said that for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe you sent me. Jesus is totally doing the thing parents do, where you pray really loud so you can teach your kids a lesson in the prayer. You're like driving your van like, Lord, I thank you that in this family we don't hit people even when we're mad. Thank you, Lord. Jesus is like, God, me and you, Father, one, from the beginning. Then Are they looking? They're looking. I'll talk even louder. They're looking. All right, good. good. They, all, they all think this is a tragedy, but at the end, all of the Mary, Martha, and Lazarus disciples, everyone's going to know that this is awesome. All right, all right, all right. And when he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. Just, just press pause in your brain and try and picture standing there watching that stuff. The dead man came out with his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. And Jesus said to him, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Like right up to the point that he came out, not a single soul thought that that's was, that was what was going to go down that day. And Jesus had to instruct them to go unwrap him. You know why? Nobody was running toward Lazarus. You're just standing there and you're like, I don't even know why we're here. Now we rolled the thing away, and out comes the mummy just hopping out the tomb. And you're like, oh, I'll tell you which way I would have been running away from Lazarus. And Jesus is like, hey, unwrap him before he trips on a rock and hits his head and dies all over again. Like, I, don't, I got stuff to do this afternoon. I don't have time. Somebody unwrap the guy. And then the story ends with like a total understatement. Like the craziest thing anyone has ever seen in their entire life just 
happen? And they're like, holy smokes. And their minds are blown. And then verse 45 is like, some people believed when they saw that. I bet they did. Like, dead men did not come back to life except when they do, because that's what Jesus does, and that's how Jesus rolls, and that's how Jesus loves. The fifth thing I want us to see today is God's help is our hope. He is the resurrection and the life. Anybody could walk around saying that stuff. Only one God could prove it. Only Jesus could turn the story around entirely. His help is our hope, because waiting isn't easy, especially when we're waiting in a painful place. But I think so often, just like Mary and Martha, we concern ourselves with God moving immediately, and we're more worried about Him moving immediately than we am, or than we are Him moving effectively. Like we want to hurry toward good, but God always patiently waits for great. I don't know where it is in your life right now that you desperately need God to show up and be real and move in a miraculous way, but I know it's somewhere. I know it's somewhere for all of us. It's somewhere for me, and what I want to invite you to do today is believe that he will show up every single time, that he is at work to set all things right and make all things new, and peace is coming. Peace, this biblical concept called shalom, where nothing is missing and nothing is broken. That is God's promise to you and me, even though our world is not yet the way we want it to be. And we can anchor our lives on that promise. And so the next time you find yourself waiting and it feels excruciating, you're feeling like, why doesn't God do something about that? Why doesn't he show up? He could, but he's not doing it yet. Then he's going to invite you to answer the same question he invited Martha to answer. Do you still believe? I am who I promised you I am do you believe what you used to believe about who I was even though I didn't do what you thought I would do and I promise you today you can walk out of here knowing that you know that you know at the core of who you are that you can answer yes to that because he is good and he loves us and he shows up every single time like when life knocks you down and it will my prayer is that you'll believe God is working in your waiting. God is creating beauty out of brokenness. God's delay is not a denial. God is near when you're in need, and God's help is your hope. It's a hope worth holding on to. Because I think if we can walk out of here today and latch on to that hope, then even in the darkest of nights, in the middle of life's battles, when we're staring down mountains that need to be moved and giants that need to be conquered, we can live with every ounce of the courage we need to wait patiently, to not hurry toward the good, but wait patiently for the great because God is on the move in our lives and he's gonna show up because that's what he always does. It's who he is, it's who he's always been and we can bet our entire lives that he'll show up when we need him. And if we bet our lives on that, we will not only be able to better handle the inevitable storms that come our way, but we'll be able also to point a hurting world toward the love of God it's longing for in the middle of its storms. Will you guys pray with me? Lord, thank you. Thank you for showing up for us again and again and again and again. Thank you for never abandoning us to the brokenness of this world we live in. Thank you for loving us through it. Thank you for creating space for incredible, amazing things to happen. Lord, all of us are here today with imperfect lives. 
All of us are here today with some cracks and wrinkles and imperfections in our stories. All of us are here with stories that will have a chapter called death. But we praise you today that death is not the final chapter of any of our stories. And I pray that you would fill us up to overflowing with this hope, this anchor for our souls, that you are near in the middle of all the tragedies we encounter, that you're near in the middle of all our brokenness and all our hurt, and that you love us in a way that allows us to go love the people around us and point them toward your love. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for caring about us. Thank you for being the God who sets all things right and makes all things new. We praise in Jesus' name.